listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Montalcino. Well, Daniel, where are we? We are in Montalcino, but we're not at the end of the race yet because there's another circuit the riders have to do. We've just seen the leaders come through the lead group. We've just seen George Bennett and Tobias Foss in a little bit of a rogue move a counter-attack, and then we've seen the lead group, which earlier, well, it's the, it's the remnants of the group that was torn to shreds by Filippo Ganna. Yeah, um, incredible, well, it's an incredible stage today. Second half of the stage, 35 kilometers on these white gravel roads. They promised a lot, and I think so far they've kind of delivered. That front group is, well, the, the group of the, the favorites is pretty small. Simon Yates sat in the back. There's been a scary moment for him and for Remco Evenepoel. They've got back, but i say this is a day that promised a lot, didn't it? And we um, convened this morning in Perugia and spoke to a few people there. You're going to point out something, Daniel? Well, the, there's another group coming through. We expect to see Dan Martin in this group because we know that he's one of the victims of that Filippo Ganna, uh, Razoyata. The, there he is, in fact. He's leading the group down. Bad day for him so far. Rich, uh, just with the naked eye, I would say that group, it, that gap is probably, well, it's irreparable, isn't it, to the... Well, I can tell you exactly what it is, because we started recording. I know when, so it's about a minute, he's not going to get back on, I don't think, but initially, and here's another big group, uh, maybe Formolo there, but initially, Ghana did so much damage. He was like a wrecking ball. He took about five minutes out of the breakaway's lead in the first section of gravel alone, and it looked as if the breakaway might come back. I think that's less likely now. But shall we go back to Perugia and the start this morning? And we'll hear what Matt Winston and Matt White thought about um, how this stage would unfold. Matt, huge day. In many ways, it's the most hotly anticipated day of the Giro, uh, gravel, Montalcino. What's going to happen? Yeah, I think everyone's going to be uh, pretty excited um, going into this stage. It's the stage that people talk about and will be for sure nervous about. So I think we'll see a, a GC battle. I think we'll see a lot of teams protecting GC leaders. Uh, there'll be a real fight for every sector. Then there maybe will be a little bit of a regrouping while the teams get the overview of where the leaders are. And then it'll, again, it'll be full gas for the next sector. You have been quite concerned about this stage. I know that from talking to you about the recon. I think you were quite shocked when you first saw the route. Yeah, I was, and and, and it has been uh, made a lot safer and a lot more rideable. I saw it in March the first time I saw it, and and we were assured by the organisation there would there would be a big effort, especially from the local uh, local town, to fix up uh, the, the sections, and and they have made a big effort. So. And they've even, and again, yesterday we spent six hours in the car yesterday, ch- checking and videoing all the sections, and it's even been improved since in the last two weeks. So it's it look it's tricky, but it's certainly another. It's a totally different from what I saw in March. Potentially, you could see a surprise in winner today, uh, rather than your on paper Strada Bianchi style winners. Um, just because of the nature and the dynamics of each team, whether it's a GC focus or whether they just go full for the stage. Um, but I think for sure we're in for an interesting day. You've just been, I think you've been doing your briefing on the bus. Um, what do you think your guys are most nervous about? What's the sort of mood in there? Um, I think it's, it's, it's all about positioning. So we talked, we've talked a lot about positioning. We also try to keep it quite simple though, because on a stage like today, you can talk about a thousand different scenarios that just might not happen. Simon yesterday, of all the GC leaders, Simon maybe sounded, I wouldn't say nervous about it, but I don't think he particularly 
likes the fact that a stage um, of this ilk is in a Grand Tour. Um, how nervous is he? Can you tell us? Well, I think uh, Simon was just being honest. I think uh, other people, if they can put up a facade that they're not, they're not concerned about today's stage. But anyone who, I said, anyone who thinks that today's not dangerous, that today's not tricky, yeah, they're kidding themselves. And it's, well, it's, it's gravel, you know. It's, uh, you might be the most skilled guy in the peloton, but if someone dumps it in front of you, you can be as skilled as you want. Uh, you know, this most skilled rider doesn't control when you puncture. So there's, there's a degree of tension there, and, and we, uh, we're as prepared as any team here. And the guys are confident in their equipment, and that's all we can do. We could have done a five-hour meeting, I'm sure, where we talk about every every opportunity or every chance that might happen, but we just kept it simple. Positioning well into the sectors, regrouping after the sectors, having a good overview of where our leaders are, and then again positioning for the next the next sector. I, I think traditionally what we've also seen in these stages, like the Roubaix stage as well, is that those specialists on these terrains, unless they have not got a GC leader, and I, I don't, I don't, one doesn't come to mind, that they... It's, it's a risk if, if they rip the section apart they also risk of ripping their leader apart and so it does be, sometimes it does become a little bit more, more negative you know this is not Strata Bianchi in March this is not Paris-Roubaix so to those races people specialists come and the whole bunch are specialists to a degree here you've got a very very small group of specialists for this sort of terrain and you've got leaders who are trying to manage the terrain and get through today unscathed so sometimes you know, people think oh Quickstep could do this or Ineos could do that well, they might, but they also they also could put their leader into into a spot of bother by doing it. So sometimes that works in reverse, and it actually becomes more negative than than aggressive. They could tie a rope to Filippo Ganna or I don't know or Moscow and put Bernal on the end of it. That might work. Well, it might on the first section. It might on the first section, but uh, some of the big boys aren't going to go too much too much further after that. Still gassing on fueling, not sure what or when to eat and drink on rights that matter, never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. My name is Kevin Sprouse. I'm a sports medicine physician, head of medicine for EF Nippo Pro Cycling. And I also have a practice called Podium Sports Medicine in the U.S. One of my other positions is I'm a scientific advisor for Super Sapiens. Currently, professional riders are using this type of technology to test out various strategies around fueling. And when I say fueling, I mean, it's, it's what you eat on the bike. It's what you eat to recover. It's how you set yourself up overnight to perform well at the next effort. And a lot of that is, has previously been based on feeling, has been based on generic science, which is certainly usable, but it's kind of what's best for the, the middle of the bell curve. And this allows some individualization of that. And so what you see riders doing now is testing different strategies. You know, what fuel on the bike works for them? What timing works best? Uh, how do they set themselves up for a TT or a climb so that they're optimally fueled when they get there? This is a technology that I think we will see it with greater and greater frequency, both in the pro peloton and then as you step down through the various professional ranks and even, even the recreational ranks. I've got many of my recreational uh, athlete patients using this. And for the same reasons, to look at those parts of our metabolism and our fueling that we just couldn't see before. Well, Daniel, here we are, catching our breath after the stage. We're in nearby Montalcino in our in our hotel. We've had to take shelter. In, yeah, in your, maybe we'll move outside because we're in my boudoir. Well, at the we're moment. in your palatial suite, and it's been very interesting to me to see how the other half live because I've been I've been slumming it around this Giro in pokey little rooms, barely swing a cat. This is what happens when you, I conduct all the, the sort of negotiations yeah, and, and pleasantries when we when we yeah. check in. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you did this at the last place as well. I mean, this I is can actually confirm I did this at the last <laughs> place. <laughs> anyway, here we are. Um, we've uh, taken taken refuge because it was raining very heavily. Well, Richard, I propose that after the tail of the tapper, we move out of the boudoir onto the terrace. Mm-hmm. 
and um, well, we'll be admiring the vineyards outside our um, not-so-humble abode for this evening. And um, apparently the views on a clear day, today's not a clear day, they stretch as far as the sea, which I can't quite believe. The Siena. Possibly the um, Siena. Well, Daniel, it was a crackerjack of a stage, as you would say. Um, we heard there from from the start the Matts, Matt Winston and Matt White of uh, Team DSM and Team Bike Exchange. And... Um, uh, that was a bit of a bit from Perugia as, as we looked ahead to the stage and, and you heard from us, of course, at right at the beginning of the episode as the stage was still going on. Um, it, it really was a, a, a terrific stage. You know, it's, it's funny, we heard in last night's episode from Simon Yates and we've heard from others about how they don't approve of, you know, this, this type of um, stage in a grand tour, that it's unfair, etc. But anybody watching that today... Um, would would not have shared that opinion at all. I mean, there there were no real hard luck stories today. There there were writers who didn't perform, who were caught out by the terrain and the the, the challenges of the the dirt roads. But um, it was a an absolutely absolute rip snorter of a stage, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and it ticked lots of boxes, um, lots of different slices on the cheesecake of engagement. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Uh, a lovely, a lovely base. Yeah, a it was creamy filling. It was very, very beautiful, rich. We drove a lot of the stage. We certainly drove the first um, seventy or eighty kilometers, um, and we did, we didn't do the final lap. But we saw. I mean, I flagged up Denali this morning, the most photographed road in Italy, just beyond a place called La Foce, which is near Chianciano um, Terme, and we saw that. Then we went down into San Quirico d'Orcia, the Orcia Valley, and that was um, extraordinary. In this area of Tuscany, um, you know, for my money, it's the most picturesque. It's not the most necessarily visited. Um, usually you get these fantastic burnt colours and um, these very expansive views. Um, the expansive views were very much there today, but it's, it was greener than I've ever seen it before. Just Lush. Sort of underlining what an unusual... And, and very wet and cold. Still today is pretty cold. Um, spring we're having. So it's stage 11 from Perugia to Montalcino. Second half of the stage um, dominated by those four sectors of, of white dirt roads. Um, and uh, they were they were tough. I mean, there's 35 kilometres in total, which is a lot. Day's breakaway went very early. Um, Dries de Bont was in it. We've seen a lot of him in his Belgian Champions jersey. We're going to hear from him a bit later in the stage race for Alps and Phoenix. He was actually the the instigator. He was joined by Alessandro Covey of UAE Team Emirates, Simon Guglielmi of Groupama FTG, Lawrence Nassen of AG2R Citroen, Harm van Hoek and Roger Kluger of Lotto Sudal, Taco van der Horn and Marche, Bert Jan Lindemann and Mauro Schmidt of Quebec Assos, Enrico Bataglin, former stage winner in Giro, Bardiani now, and Francesco Gavazzi of Aolo. No Androni Giocattoli riders there once again. No Androni Giocattoli riders. And I was initially alarmed by this and I was worried that the Androni boys were going to get another roasting from the the Gianni Savio hairdryer tonight. However, Rich, um, I bumped into Gianni in Montalcino just before the finish and he set the record straight about Androni's performance today. Today, the, the, the formation Gianni was... Today was uh, eight calm. The formation today then, eight calm, eight calm. <laughs> Just everyone calm Why? today, everyone tranquilly. Because Gianni thought it was too hard and he's more focused on tomorrow's stage okay. and he wants, well, he will certainly be angry if they're not in a break tomorrow, but he seems to be, have become quite pragmatic in this Giro about the the likelihood and the need to get a rider in the break every single day. Of course, this has been his team's trademark for a long time, but I think he got his fingers burnt a little bit, didn't he? Because Mauro Veni made these comments last year about you know not really being interested in teams that get a rider um, in the break every day you know, necessarily, and he was more interested in the outcome of the breaks. So Gianni seems to have taken that to heart, and he, now he's he's focused, his laser focus is on stage wins. I mean, that break built up a big lead, and in fact would, would contest the stage. They had 14 minutes as they hit the first sector of um, gravel. I would call it gravel, dirt, it's a kind of hybrid. Um, and it was Ineos really took it on as they hit that section. Filippo Ghana 
um, just dynamited the race, really, uh, right from the, the minute they hit the, the dirt. Egan Bernal in a great position on his wheel. Um, Remco Evenepoel started the day second, much further back and uh, in trouble from sector one. Um, Alberto Betiol was up there, as we predicted. Hugh Carthy was there. Um, but Evenepoel, it was notable very early that he was in trouble. Jonathan Caicedo of EF crashed, and he was a, a DNF, unfortunately. I should say Tim Merlier was a DNS. He didn't start um our stage winner, um, former Chiclamino jersey winner, but he's gone home, his first Grand Tour. Um, Dan Martin and Davide Formula were also two of the riders in the top 10 who were in trouble, and they were the big losers from the top 10 today. Never never near the front, really, and uh, lost a lot of time in the end. Um, there was a, an early split, and it was all under the, the, the impetus of Ghana, really, who did a sort of 15... 20 kilometer time trial on the front and and just blew the race apart yeah so i compared him to i've I've used this comparison this analogy before the luca barazzi from the godfather he was um don corleone's sort of henchman who would go in and kind of you know start breaking people's jaws um on the door and then don corleone would come in looking very kind of cool and serene in his big trench coat and not have to do any of the dirty work and that's sort of the role that Ganna's playing here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, it was an interesting race because there was a lot of interest in what was happening behind, but also what was happening in the break was interesting too. There was an early split behind Evenepoel, Simon Yates, Hugh Carthy, all in a second group. Um, that came back together once Ghana swung off, and he was used up fairly relatively early. And uh, When he swung, up, swung off, there was a, a regrouping, and they all came back into that group, but Evenepoel never looked happy. The big climb on gravel, 13 kilometres long, the Paso del Lumispento. Now, what does that mean, Daniel? It means the the part of the light turned off and there's, as usual with these things, there was some conjecture today um, on Italian TV, but also I've been reading about it. There is some conjecture about where this name comes from. There's some suggestion, and I can't believe what a hot topic wind has been on this Giro, uh, me having completely dismissed Italy as a place where there is any wind. Um, Brunello, I'm sorry, Montalcino is quite well known for uh, for being relatively breezy, not windy, I wouldn't say. But on the pass in particular, the Lume Spento, that is, there is uh, a decent amount of wind usually. And apparently the old carriages used to turn their lanterns off um, when they were going over this particularly windy spot. I can't really see the link. Why would you turn your lanterns off when it was windy? Was it because they might fall? Or yeah, well, they'd blow out. Oh, okay. That, is that how? I mean, is that, that how things used to work in the yeah. olden days? Yeah, before there was okay, before so electricity. Okay, so that's, that's there was a naked flame. That's what we used for okay, light. I didn't, I didn't know this. I didn't things. know you, every day is a school day on the, <laughs> on the cycling <laughs> podcast. And um, the other theory is, is well, it's hinted at in Dante's Purgatory or Dante's Inferno um, that it is was something to do with the Black Death. And when people were killed by the Black Death, this was seen as a sort of divine punishment. And as a recognition of this, the lights were turned off, lanterns, candles, whatever, at people's funerals who died, who who suffered that fate, death by the Black or the Black Death, the pest. Headline writer's dream today. We saw George Bennett and Tobias Foss, the Yumba Visma pair, on the attack, that was good to see on that climb. I should just say that on the Paso del Lume Spento, there is a winery of the same name, a Brunello producer. Of course there is. Um, Evenepoel in trouble again and dropped. And there was some confusion over his... He had one teammate in that group, uh, Joao Almeida, who is leaving to kind of quit at the end of the year. And they haven't seemed to be always be on the same page. And there was some... Uh, well, Evenepoel was on his own for a long time, which is a surprising thing to see for the, the rider in second place overall. Um, Almeida eventually dropped back um, to help him. By the time we emerged from the, the fourth sector of, fourth and final sector of uh, dirt roads, we had a group of 14 at the front. Caruso and Bilbao were there for Bahrain victorious. Uh, EF had Betiol, Guerrero and Carthy. Uh, there was also Bernal, Nibali, Ciccone, Yates, Soler, Riding very well, Bardet, Buchmann, Foss, and Rudy Mollar. Um, 
the former yellow jersey Attila Walter was sort of yo-yoing a little bit from that group as well. Um, but the the final challenge was was not on dirt. It was a, a climb of the Lumi Spento on tarmac, and that was really really hard. It was a really grippy climb. We drove down it tonight, Daniel. Um, up front, uh, although. Um, Debont had been very aggressive. It was actually Schmidt and Covey, both very young riders. They reached the top together and they would fight out the finish. Schmidt, the 21-year-old, a, a great track rider who's been selected for the Tokyo Olympics, actually, for Switzerland, winning for um, Quebec at Assos. On the day that we released an episode about his teammate, Michael Gogol, um, who... Think he was that, inspired by that? Maybe, maybe. Put in that incredible performance at Strade Bianchi in, in March... Um, Schmidt, uh, another surprise uh, winner today, but uh, obviously a great talent and a, and a great result for that team. On the climb behind, as the group, um, the, the group of leaders tackled the Lumi Spento on tarmac, it was a, a real kind of battle of attrition. One by one, riders just gave up the ghost. Vincenzo Nibali swung off and, and then got dropped. And then, perhaps more surprisingly, Ciccone, who'd become the Trek Segafredo team leader also was dropped. Mark Soler was dropped, having recently attacked and having had numbers in the group at one point. Soler was dropped as well. Meanwhile, Emmanuel Buchmann, who's been below par at this Giro, he attacked. Vlasov countered. Bernal responded, went over the top of Vlasov, bridged up to Buchmann, and they came to the finish together. Very good signs for Buchmann for the rest of this Giro. He moved up quite a lot of places. So on the stage, Schmidt, Covey, Van Hook, um, best of the rest, and De Bont. On GC, Bernal, um, well, he's got a, a better lead than he had uh, this morning. He's 45 seconds now over Vlasov with Damiano Caruso, the sleeper, up to third. He moves up four places. Actually, a good day for Hugh Carthy, moved up to fourth, and a good day for Simon Yates, up to fifth, and a very good day for Emmanuel Buchmann, up to sixth. Is, it, is that the cut line, Rich? Of- Bad day for Evenepoel, who dropped to seventh. Is that the cut line sixth? Um, well, the cut line two minutes. Anyone beyond that is not going to win the Giro. I think the, those top six are within two minutes. Yeah, you think, of each other. Yeah, but no, they are. They are. But yeah. is that the point at which we say that no well, one beyond that can win? You floated the idea, Daniel, that that um, even Nepal losing time might it might might mean that we see him not riding. Sort of defensively, I think we might see some we'll Remco see, uh, pot shots from Remco some fireworks. Sort of, yeah, some the trouble 60 is sixty-yard volleys. Yeah, the trouble with that theory is he looked knackered. He, he did not look. Um, it's the first time in his entire career. I mean, you remember last year he won every stage race that he rode. He's he's, you know, his first year as a pro, he won San Sebastian. We've not really seen him suffer at all, and this is a big test for him, I think, because he's. I wouldn't say he's had it easy, but he seems to have found it quite easy, and relatively speaking. And to see him in so much trouble and really getting quite angry at one point, ripping out his earpiece. We don't know whether there was beef with the the car or with Almeida, whose riding today was erratic, I think. Hard to fathom, really, because he's out of it on GC. He should have been dedicated to helping Evenepoel, but frequently they were in different parts of the group and not really communicating very well together. So... Yeah, it's the first time we've seen Evan Nepal really in trouble and really suffering. And I'm looking forward to listening to James Knox's diary tonight. Holy f***. That was, uh, that was pretty bananas. Not a great day for us today. Bit of a disaster, really, obviously. Remco lost a couple of minutes there. Um, it was a really relaxed, <laughs> easy first 60% of the day um, and then yeah we got on to the run into the gravel Strada Bianchi the Storato and then yeah it was just uh, crazy um, obviously a lot of questions and things in the media things on Twitter about couldn't quick steps race today um, can only tell you from what, from what I saw in the race but yeah I guess I think, you know, Remco would say himself after the day he wasn't overly confident on the the white roads and on that first section where it wasn't really about the the legs so much, it was more about positioning and handling. It wasn't exactly moving forward, should I say, and yeah, we all stayed around him and had to go really, really hard to close the gap off that first section. Um, and the difference is, if you're in front, you're sort of doing a 
a smooth hard effort but behind we were just sort of like we were only in like position 30 or whatever but yeah it makes a big difference you're sort of slowing down a lot on every corner sprinting out of every corner sprinting up every little every little climb and then we came off the the first section what can i say it was just sprinting just sprinting just to stay in the wheel of the second group and then me remy seri mickle did our best i was just dying in the wheel to be honest i was just a passenger trying to roll through um and then yeah we all collectively blew our doors basically closing that gap to the Ineos group, the group with the other favourites. But uh, we kept drawing the wheels with Remco. And then from there, those two tried to do the best they could. I mean, I would say a little bit frustrating seeing all the negative, nasty comments. Yeah, cycling fans getting a little bit carried away on Twitter, social media. I think DS's couldn't see anything in the car. Uh, Joao waited as soon as he knew that Remco was on the wheel, you know, when they came into that last gravel section, pretty sure Remco was with him and then for whatever reason, slipping backwards and backwards and then lost contact with the group as far as I know. And then when Joao realized, stayed with him and tried to help him best he could because he was in a bit of crisis, which I think everyone could see. He doesn't don't really need to go into that and try to limit losses. Obviously frustrating, not, um, not what we planned on today. Certainly not how Remco envisaged it, I think. But that's life, that's bike racing. Um, you know, he deal, deals with a lot of pressure, a lot of expectation. None more so than what he puts on himself. So, yeah, I think, yeah, we'll be... have to rally around him a little bit tonight. Uh, still the rest of the Giro to go. Plenty of opportunities to move forwards, not backwards, and, and do our best. But, yeah, other than that, my sensations of the day breathing through a straw pipe highest heart rate i've had for an hour in i don't know how long like 176 beats per minute for the last hour of racing well and truly heart pounding in my head pounding in my chest horrible didn't really feel like i had the power though but yeah really really hard um obviously my first experience i've never done strada bianchi don't mind riding a little bit of uh, gravel when i'm nosing around back in Andorra or Girona in the last couple of years, but um, a bit different in a race. And yeah, other than that, beautiful region, Montalcino. Saw all the vineyards, very famous. Italy's best wine, so I'm told. A lot of wine around here. Uh, Chianti's just 10, 15k away. Mm, Monte Pulciano and I think also Pucci Bonsi has it. Famous for it as well, but not getting the chance to drink any save that till the end but anyway we'll have to put this one behind us today and keep uh plugging away try and maybe get on the offensive see what we can do yeah yeah difficult day the cycling podcast at the 2021 giro d'italia is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science Thanks very much indeed to Science and Sport for their continued support of the Cycling Podcast. Very grateful to them for that. And if you want 25% off your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the code SISCP25. SISCP25. And uh, if you want to enter our Science and Sport competition, Super Sunday, predict Sunday's winner, um, go to our website, thecyclingpodcast.com. If you predict Sunday's winner and your name is then selected at random, you will win an £80 bundle of science and sport goodies. We heard before the break there from James Knox, our audio diarist, the cunning quick set writer, of course. And James's diary, this is his third Grand Tour, he's kept an audio diary for us. He always comes into his own in times of adversity, I have to say. Not a good he's day. Like, he's the Ken Loach of the, <laughs> he's of the, Ken, the, <laughs> the pro He's been compared to Alan Bennett. Or, yeah, but he he's very honest, I think, and it wasn't a good day for his team. He said they have to rally around um, Remco Evenepoel. Um, you know, just a little hint there of a uh, kind of vulnerability to him that he doesn't project himself, certainly. And I said this is the first time I've seen him suffering, and it's a real test for him, but it's an important test, and it's a test that was always going to come because 
you know, Egan Bernal we're seeing here resurgent and, and we haven't probably talked enough about how impressive he's been, but he of course had some adversity last year. He's responded very well to that. Evan from reading his comments tonight in a press release sent out by his team, his year is not over by any means. He had a bad day and as James said there, a big part of the problem today was his bike handling on those um on those dirt roads. That's something he can work on and improve at. Um which is will be in, encouraging for him in his, when he comes to, to debrief on this Giro. Yeah, you just think about, well, this wave of, of new riders and new talent and how many of them have really ridden bikes. Another 21-year-old winning today. Yeah, and only just 21 as well. He was 21 in, in um, December. But, you know, how many of them have really grown up? I mean, if you read um, interviews with someone like Tom Pidcock's dad, um, it's really brought home to you just how he grew up on a bike. On uh, Pidcock's dad, who's about 35. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, yeah. And and that's obviously in stark contrast to um, Remco, who, lest we forget, I mean, I think he did, you know, he, he, he messed around on bikes, didn't he? And his dad, of course, had been a pro. So, you know, it wasn't the first time he sat on a bike in, when was it? 2017, really, he rode his first races. And 2018 was his first proper season as an, a junior rider not an under 23 a junior rider so there's not much experience and then if you add the whatever trauma he suffered suffered last year at the tour of lombardy then it's it's wholly understandable that he might have issues with bike handling and you hope it doesn't become a, a complex um of some sort today it was very noticeable as soon as he hit the gravel sections that he was he was nervous he was struggling i was a little bit surprised a few days ago but i don't think de koenig were unique in this that they didn't go and actually recon the stages sorry the gravel sections yesterday on the rest day i, I think the director sportives might have gone but they, certainly the riders didn't go and from what i gathered the conditions um today were quite different from the conditions that riders had seen when they'd done recons a few months ago i mean what james said about almeida interesting as well that you know that he was um his job was to look after Evenepoel, but communication was difficult and the cars couldn't see what was going on. That, that's perfectly plausible as well. I mean, you draw your own conclusions watching it on television and we know the, the context of Almeida moving on. So and we imagine all kinds of scenarios which may not be true and may be doing Almeida a great a great disservice. Who knows? Because in the end, he did drop back and he did help Evenepoel. And yeah, well... I mean, we, we, I mentioned uh, we should hear some, some riders who we spoke to at the finish, Daniel. Um, I spoke to Dries Debont, the Belgian champion, who was very active in that, in that breakaway and in fact started it off and looked like at one point he might finish it off too. Um, he's been riding with a very impressive Alps and Fenix team, I think. I mean, that's a team that people um, have often said is, is a one-man team, uh, all about Matthew van der Poel, but they have ridden better than a lot of World Tour teams, I think, at this Giro, their first Grand Tour. So here's what Dries de Bont, I'm quite disappointed Dries de Bont had to say at the finish. Well, you must have been delighted to be in that, that move, but in the end, are you a bit disappointed? Yeah, a little bit. I think, uh, but I felt I was not the strongest climber, so I was a bit afraid of the last climb, and I wanted to be in front. Uh, I followed Kovi's move, and I saw it was a good one, so it was good. But then, uh, yeah, my legs uh, exploded for like a little minute on the climb and then I tried to recover and and get back with Harm, but even he went too fast. So, yeah, I'm disappointed because I know if I get over it and I get to the line with, with, the, with the group, then I, I think I'm the, the favorite to win it in the sprint. But, uh, yeah, didn't get there, so... It, it was a stage that did a lot of damage, obviously. I mean, how not just the gravel but the climbing as well how hard was it yeah i think it's one for the books uh, <laughs> i think i'm gonna feel it in the next uh, couple of days as well so hope to recover fast and uh, and have a couple of easy days now well you might i mean you, you've lost your your main sprinter but you must be pleased as a team with how you've been performing at this giro i think we've showed ourselves already a couple of times and uh, we took four plays in the mountain stage uh, it was in gc for a long time in a very good spot. Johnny took two times top 10. Tim won the stage, was one time third. Uh, now I was sixth, I have four today. 
think we can be disappointed as a team. We do very, very well in our first Grand Tour, and uh, yeah, but it's so it's not over yet. Eh? So there's more to come. Well, that's Dries de Bont, who was up the road and having a go at trying to win the stage. But and and it was an interesting stage from from that point of view. Um, incredible how the gap to the leaders came down when Ghana went to the front, and then in the end, it was only about three minutes, which is which tells you how hard they were riding behind. Bernal in particular. And, I mean, the one cautionary note about Bernal is that he has been riding exceptionally well. Um, and he's obviously in great form. Um, but an awful lot of riders are still in contact. And I think riders like Hugh Carthy, Simon Yates, really got out of jail today because they never looked as if they were really comfortable. They certainly never looked like they were going to attack. Um, and Bernal... He's got the strongest team, I think. Um, and he himself is is going, as I said, exceptionally well. But he's still within touching distance of the others, isn't he? Yeah, they're within touching distance of him. I mean, the general that's classification what, sorry, I mean. is still quite short in the sense that you know six riders are within two minutes. My, my concern, and I said this, I aired this to you earlier, is that there are riders there for whom... Uh, a second or a third or a fourth place would already be career-defining, career-changing. And I'm thinking about Vlasov and I'm thinking about Caruso. And, well, in fact, this might be a good juncture, a good moment at which to hear from Caruso. And the rider that he called his guardian angel due to the role that Peo Bilbao played today. Tapa veramente dura, dura, impegnativa, sin subito da... It was really, really hard from the first gravel section. No one held back. I have to say thanks to the team, especially Peo Bilbao, who was my guardian angel right until the end. I said this morning the podium was a dream and sometimes dreams come true. I have to keep on believing. But really, I just want to savour the moment because focusing on such a big objective just saps your energy. Today was just a really hard day for everyone. You never know how we're each going to react. Bernal showed again that you don't win a Tour de France by fluke. He's the man to beat in this Giro. Remco, well, he's a kid who had a really bad accident last year. Today the descents on gravel were really tough and it could be there's some scar tissue from that crash last year. So him struggling is very normal. Can I ask you one, Peo, in uh, English? Just tell me what it was like when you got to the first sector of gravel and when Filippo Ganna, well, like, it was like a bomb exploding. How did that feel then? <laughs> the first moment was quite crazy, you know, to come there in the front and suddenly uh, all the group exploded in... In a lot of uh, smaller groups, we were not in the best position. Damiano was having some difficulties in the beginning, no, until he took a bit of confidence. So, just with cold blood, uh, we tried to keep uh, the, the position in the group, go from the third one for the, to the second one. And, and after, in a smaller group, it was much easier to, to work, to keep the position and uh, with good legs that he demonstrated. Today, he did a great job. I could uh, help also him now, uh, keeping the position all the time. And I think today we, we let uh, behind a lot of big uh, names. That's the, the most important. So there was well, the Bahrain victorious pair, Bilbao and Caruso. And Caruso sort of bearing out and what I what I suggested there, that for him, I mean, this would be uh, the best result of his career without any doubt. And he's very happy with where he is at the moment. And his will be, I guess, a defensive position. He's certainly not thinking about winning the Giro, although he's relatively close on general classification. Interesting there, he also mentioned the, the mental scar tissue with Remco Evenepoel and how it was very very much understandable that he should suffer and struggle um, with his bike handling today on those gravel sections. Yeah, I mean, uh, quite extraordinary that Caruso is up, up to third overall without us really noticing him at all. I mean, if you were to say, though, and we're, half, we're halfway through the Giro, but how many altitude metres have we have we done compared to how many are still to go? There's still a long, long way to go. Of the riders in the top six, who wouldn't be happy with the podium? I would say Simon Yates, but he just doesn't, he doesn't have that sparkle about him that he had a couple of weeks ago at the Tour of the Alps. 
No, not at the moment, but we haven't been, I don't think we've been over 1,500 metres altitude yet. Or no, we did at Sestola. But we've not certainly got not, not got to the high mountains yet. And I think, you know, the, the big Dolomite stage, the stage that finishes in Cortina, that's a completely different type of riding, a type of race. And, you know, that's a week away or almost a week away, I think. And, you know, the situation could, could all be very different then. But as you say, Ineos are so strong. And the, the thing that sort of would worry me if I was in a uh, rival of Egan Bernal's is they've got a, a rider for every kind of occasion, for every circumstance. Um, this looks to be one of the best balanced Ineos Grenadiers teams I've seen. Um, you know, Moscon and Ganna could go home now and they've already, you know, they've already done a fantastic job. And and that's translated into real gains. It's not just that they've protected Bernal, put him in the right position to then show what he can do. They've actually distance riders and they distance riders today you know dan martin was was flushed out of the general classification today essentially by the job that they did in the oscar so it's 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 early yet um but they could be looking at three zero victories in four years which is the sort of dynasty that they've had at the tour um is it frustrating in a way there's still a possibility that bernard would go to the the tour as well but that has been suggested, but is it frustrating that Bernal in this kind of form isn't going toe-to-toe with uh, Pog and Rog at the Tour? A lot of cycling in this episode, isn't there? Sorry. Hell of a lot of cycling. Sorry. Um, you can change the subject if you want. <laughs> um, it was frustrating. Right. Not, not frustrating, but, you know... Uh, the the sort of form he look the sort of form is very difficult to measure, but it, the sort of form he's in, he looks kind of irresistible at the moment, and and you think Pog and Rog are, at the, and we we've talked about how races without those two lack a certain stardust, but Bernal currently has that. Yeah, he does, but by the standards of ten or fifteen years ago, the the general classification is still incredibly close. You know, we said. Um, six riders within two minutes. It's it's second still. I mean, I was struck yesterday in his press conference when he was asked a question about how much time he thinks he needs going into the final time trial in Milan. And usually riders hate these questions, and rightly so, because the final time trial in Milan is almost two weeks away. And, you know, to, to even be minded to, to calculate, you know, in terms of seconds that you might need... Um, I, I was quite sh- I was quite shocked that he gave a straight answer and an answer which suggested that he'd actually seriously considered this question, but he was already thinking in terms of winning this Giro by seconds, not minutes, which is alien to someone who, you know, with all the caveats that apply, someone who watched cycling 10, 15 years ago when we never had Grand Tours that were decided by seconds. Um, and, and that suggested to me that you know, Bernal, not in his wildest dreams, does he think that he's going to be putting in attacks in the Dolomites and Alps that are going to gain him two or three minutes. Who's going to be most disappointed tonight? Well, Dan, Dan, Dan Martin, Martin, I think. I think uh, Giulio Ciccone as well. Ciccone and, you know, Nibali, we already knew that he was he was probably, he was hanging on by his they fingernails. Even playing Madonna in Perugia at the start this morning as, if to, as if to encourage him. So Dan Martin now 18th rich on general classification at seven minutes and six seconds down. I mean, he's almost, he's he's in the potential stage winning territory already. You know, he can go in a break tomorrow, I would suggest, and it won't cause too many sort of frissons of anxiety in the in the lead group. And Ciccone as well. Well, Ciccone is eighth on general classification. He's not too far away. I mean, two minutes 24 seconds today could have just been a bad day and you know it would still if he was to finish eighth that would still be by far his best performance overall in a in a grand tour and a continuation of his development on that front a rider that impressed me today was tobias foss um who's moved up to ninth overall i think george bennett uh will now be working for him um, it almost switched on the stage, in fact. <laughs> As they came past us. Yeah, when, when they got away together, I think Foss was working for Bennett. But by the end of the stage, I think Bennett will be working for Foss. And, you know, he's a great talent. I don't know how he'll get on in the, the high mountains because he's a big lad, but he's riding extremely well at the moment. Buchmann could be a problem. Buchmann. Could a be a problem for Bernal. Buchmann. 
People forget how close Emmanuel Buchmann came to winning the Tour de France two years ago. Um, the, the Tour de France that Egan Bernal won. It was close, yeah. And since then, you know, he's had some health problems and he's a rider that you always, and this is fag packet analysis, which is, you know, the, the kind of analysis that we specialize in. Um, but he looks, he always looks incredibly thin and frail and pale as well sometimes and you do wonder whether he, you know you feel that his form is just always on a knife edge and his health in terms of health in terms of how well he can perform in grand tours is on a knife edge and when he he lost time early in this year i thought feared the worst well it's not gonna it's really not gonna happen for him um but he's clearly coming into good form and when he is in good form there are a small handful of riders in the world who climb better than emmanuel Buchmann. momentum is everything in a grand tour isn't it and he'll be feeling very, he's got a good very, team. Yeah, he's, he's got, got a, a strong team. team. He's got good a team, team for every terrain as well. He's mm. got guys like Oss and Sagan who can also turn his help, uh, turn his hand to help. Cesare Benedetti. Yeah, and Felix Kohlschartner, uh, who is an excellent mountain domestic. Yeah, I mean, you know, the momentum is with Buchmann and against Evenepoel at the moment. And the thing that might count most against Evenepoel is tomorrow's very tough stage. It's another difficult one, isn't it, tomorrow? Do you want to change the subject before we sign off for the evening? Do you want to talk about something other than cycling? Well, Rich, yesterday was a sad day for Italy and a sad day for followers of Italian music and culture because Franco Battiato um, died. And so at 76 years of age, a Sicilian, a great sort of avant-garde revolutionary of Italian music. You know, when we think of Italian music, we spoke about Vasco Rossi earlier in the Giro, and Vasco Rossi is a bit of a, you know, almost a figure of fun in the sense that he's this aging rocker, and it's very much popular music, very much mainstream music. Um, Battiato had real sort of cred in terms, real credibility in terms of, you know, artistic credibility, quite highbrow credibility. Um, Sicilian, born in, Sicil- born in Sicily, died in Sicily yesterday. And uh, a good friend of the podcast, uh, Rory Mason, or Mazzini, he, he lived for a long time in Italy. Um, I n- got to know Rory when, well, he, he used to work in sports marketing and when he, um, what he had connections with liquid gas team and rory now works for bianchi and he's a lover of all things italian a real italophile and obviously a big fan of franco battiato's music so i gave rory a challenge i said rory sum up battiato and his legacy in a minute and if you succeed, we will play your message tonight. He didn't succeed. It was a minute and 70 minutes. But before, before a minute we hear, and 70 minutes? No, sorry, a minute and 17 seconds. But we, before we hear from Rory, let's just hear a little blast, a little taste of Franco Battiato. Ciao Daniele, sono Mazzini, and hi Richard, this is Rory from Iowa in the middle of the U.S. Italy and the music world are mourning the death of Franco Battiato, who passed away yesterday at his home in Milo, Sicily, at the base of Mount Etna. Battiato was an immense figure in Italian music and was known as the maestro. He was one of the first prog rock artists to come out of Italy, but quickly moved on to experimental electronic new wave pop, lyrical opera, and even found success with film and painting. He was truly a renaissance artist. And as non-commercial as some of that sounds, he was actually the first Italian to sell over a million copies with his album La Voce del Padrone. So much like his native Sicily shows ethnic influences from many centuries of foreign rule, Battiato's music would often include ethnic sounds. His themes were philosophical and mystical, often pretty highbrow stuff. A suggestion would be La Cura, and the best version of that would be with the live with the uh, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. For the more electronic stuff, I'd suggest any of his prog releases like Fetus, Pollution, and Sulle Corde di Aris, all of which is on YouTube. And for the final, for the vinyl purists, I fear it's too late unless you have deep pockets. His originals were over four hundred dollars before he died. But like Frank Zappa said, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. So go experience Battiato, please. Forza Caruso, Forza Nibli, Viva il Giro d'Italia e Viva il Cycling Podcast. Ciao. Daniel, I, th- I always thought Zucchero was a big Italian oh, crooning sensation. Eros Ramazzotti. But let's not forget that the great story that Cadell Evans told us last year during our Giro when at his first Giro in 2002, which started in the Netherlands, there was a Zucchero concert in the Netherlands. 
the night or the two nights before the Giro started, and all his Italian Mappe teammates went off to the concert, tried to drag him along. He wasn't having any of it. it. I can believe it. Um, Eros Ramazzotti, I'm, I mentioned there, who's huge in, he was huge in Germany, um, weirdly enough. Um, Eros, I saw Eros Capecchi at the finish line today, who he featured, of course, in our Kilometre Zero uh, a couple of days ago, the partner of Giada Borgato, who's commentating on Rai, she was the main, she was the focus of the of the kilometre zero. But Eros is from Castiglione del Lago, which was just off the route today, just um, on the edge of where it's um, on the shore of Lake Trasimeno. I saw him trying fact. to embrace uh, his teammate Caruso through the the very the, the fence, which was difficult, but they managed a fist bump, um, so that was nice. Rich, we've got almost to the end of the episode and we've barely spoken about wine. And we're on a lovely, we're staying in a lovely winery, Podere Brizio. Um, we're going to be enjoying, we're going to definitely be enjoying some Brunello tonight. You were a bit sheepish, I won't say why, um, earlier today about how much wine you might want uh, to drink. I had evening. an extra extra glass of wine last glass. night and I regretted it. It was the today. glass of it death. It almost seems like it? a good idea and it, and it the wasn't extra glass a good idea. Of death. But we will be enjoying some Brunello tonight. I'm particularly looking forward to, well, hopefully there'll be... Just, the 2016 Brunello is a wine that has to be aged for a long time. It, it has to be aged for five years minimum before it's released. The two thousand oh, handy. The 2016 <laughs> has just been released in 2016. And 15 were outstanding um, vintages, so hopefully we'll get some of that tonight. I've had I've been getting messages all day from Brian Nygaard. Um, Brian Nygaard, our friend of the podcast, wine. Well, he's, he's not a winemaker, but he manages a vineyard in California, and he's he was on the course today. But he was on so the 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 course went through a number of um, quite prestigious Brunello properties. Brian was on one called um, Argiano, which, if you listen to most critics, is one of the better producers in Brunello. Brian was a little bit sniffy about it today. He was—he said they used too much oak in their wine. He was bombarding me with WhatsApp messages about the oak used in Argiano's Brunello. I said, Brian, watch the race, son. <laughs> <laughs> Unusual <laughs> advice. We bumped into Chiro as well, um, walking through the streets of Montalcino. And I, we said to Chiro, Chiro, where's where's we were trying to watch the race pass? Um, Chiro, where's the race? He just laughed. Yeah. He just laughed. He wasn't interested. He anyway. was actually he was he was in a bit of a flap. If Chiro is ever flapping off the finish because no one had seen the shark. He said, you know, he he, he thought that I might have um, mm. I might have glimpsed the shark at some point, but I couldn't help him. This was a good half an hour after the finish, and he was he was frantically sort of scarpering this way and that around the streets of Montalcino, trying to find the shark. Has anyone seen a shark? <laughs> right. On that note, let's wrap it up for tonight. Thanks very much, Daniel. Thank you, Chris. Yeah.